Welcome to the Green Element Podcast, where we meet business leaders and innovators transforming their operations to be more environmentally and socially sustainable, and in the process, help you on your journey of sustainability. I'm your host, Will Richardson. Today, we are speaking with Debbie Luffman, the Product Director at Finisterre. Finisterre is an outdoor apparel company who have embedded sustainability throughout their business practices and products. They are a certified B Corp company who use water-soluble packaging and offer a repair service to lengthen the lifespan of their products. Debbie has over 16 years of experience in the fashion and textiles industry, which spans design, buying, sourcing, and range building. Debbie has put her expertise to good use by founding Think Circular, a sustainability consultancy, and she is a trustee at Hubbub, an organisation who campaign for real and impactful behaviour change. Debbie, welcome. Thanks very much for an intro. Thanks, Will. Great to be here. Can I start by asking you how it was that you arrived in the fashion industry and how your passion for sustainability came about? Yeah, so I mean, back when I was a teenager, I was I was a, I was a bit of an eco warrior, to be honest, a bit of a tree hugger, um, and wanted to pursue something. I think that was very creative. I was very interested in creative industries, um, but didn't really know where to, where to go. And somehow I ended up studying fashion, um, and I was able to sort of carve out a bit of a niche in terms of being really interested in textiles and particularly sustainable and functional fibres. I was also really sporty, so it sort of gave me this sort of real interest in in sort of fibres that did something. Um, so once I, I studied fashion, I kind of had quite high high kind of ideals of what I was going to go and do after university. Um, unfortunately, I had a big old student loan, as you do. So I got the first job um, that came by me and sort of ended up immersed in this quite sort of sequiny high fashion. It's not fast fashion fast fashion I should say it was high street um wasn't anything such a thing as fast fashion back then <laughs> um so I kind of was in this world that was pretty much at odds with with my my values um at the time didn't really fit with who I was so as is always the right thing to do I dropped out and went traveling um I went traveling um in South America joined a circus um traveled up uh, Brazil up the coast and then landed in uh, Peru where I got involved in organic cotton um, fields and farm translating. And suddenly I was like, hang on a minute, I'm not done with textiles. I'm not done um, actually with, with sort of broader fashion and textiles. There is, there's a link here to nature. Um, it's just, just sort of getting back to, back to fibres really. And then sort of really um, realised actually I was, I, was, I was passionate about textiles more than I was about fashion. Sounds like dream job. Finisterre, sports, textiles, fashion, um, sustainability. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty uh, pretty lucky. I'm not going to lie. I didn't um, I didn't find a LinkedIn advert or anything for Finisterre. It was through um, one of my best friends at university was then at Finisterre. There were three of us. Um, not a lot of work happened. Um, not an awful lot of um, money. You know, it was really sort of dreams surfing. Um, yeah, good good times. I'm not going to lie. It was good times. Very lucky. Brilliant. And why is sustainability important to Finisterre? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting one. That I think it's so embedded in who we are that actually it sort of feels like the rest of the world's kind of talking about this all of a sudden, and which is which is great. Um, but it was so embedded from the start. It was a bit of a no brainer. 
I think a lot of it is to do with our location. So we we are in Cornwall. We're extremely lucky to be perched on a cliff edge that looks over the sea. And I think that is just such an incredibly focusing a sort of light house for everybody that works at Finisterre. You know, the sea gives us purpose, inspires us, but it's also a sort of a warning to us, I think, as well, that, you know, we're bound to protect it, it's our playground. So, you know, it's this kind of harmony, I suppose, with nature that really sort of drives everybody um, it's our dog walk at lunchtime. You know, it, it is our, it's our sort of our fun, our inspiration, our kind of restoration. It's kind of everything. So, yeah, but incredibly important um, to, to the business and to the products that we make. And what do you think Finisterre does differently to other outdoor apparel brands? I mean, I think it's worth saying that a lot of Outdoor apparel brands actually are really moving this agenda forward. So I I kind of want to call that out Um, compared to my background in the fashion industry, where I think there's an awful lot of chatter. I think the outdoor industry is doing some really um, progressive and innovative things, particularly on on a fabric front. Um, It's, you know, the, the materials that are required for functional products, you know, often synthetics, which are sort of quite, you know, bashed, everyone loves to bash plastics. Actually, you know, the apparel, um, the outdoor apparel industry, you know, really is, is making bigger strides there than the fashion industry, I would say. In terms of where Finisterre come in, I think we just looked at, okay, there's a place for these synthetics. You know, we, we know that we need to make materials which are long lasting and weatherproof and durable and fit for purpose, all of the things that the outdoor industry um, you know, requires their products. But we were very much around switching out these materials as early as possible. So, hey, if it's got to be polyester, then it's got to be recycled polyester. You know, if, if it's got to be recycled polyester, it's got to be 100% recycled polyester. So I think we just, we didn't really accept no. Um, we were just quite pushy really from the start and saying, well, why? You know, why can't we have it 100% recycled polyester? Um, so yeah, a bit of bloody mindedness. And do you think that going on your point that the outdoor apparel industry is more forward thinking? Um, do you think that's because, on the whole, when you're buying outdoor apparel, it has to be better quality. It tends to be more expensive. You are buying it for a purpose, so either to climb or to sail or to whatever. So that must play into the fact that you then have bigger margins in order to be able to invest in your product line. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is to do with, um, as, as you say, the margins, but I, but I think some of it's more fundamental than that. In terms of if you are making a product to do a certain thing from a functional point of view, it requires you to understand what is something about textiles. You know what what is what is the um, what are the, the benefits of, of that material, whether it be insulating or waterproof or windproof. In the fashion industry, my experience was very much based on you know price and aesthetic. What's it look like? Uh, you know, it's a very very different set of requirements. So um, yeah, I think that's the main difference between the two. So if you know what something is made of, it's an awful lot easier to then improve upon it. So you go, oh okay, it's cotton. Well. Where's that cotton coming from? 
what's the water impact, what's the carbon impact. If you don't know what it's made of in the first place, then, you know, knowledge is power. Um, So, yeah, I think that for me is the big fundamental. And do you think the outdoor apparel industry is doing enough to tackle the climate crisis? I mean, you know, we've, let's, let's be honest, we've got to up the ante on that sense of urgency and action. Um, so, so no, um, I do think a lot is being done, um, a lot particularly through collaboration. So I think a lot of people, particularly in the outdoor industry, are working together to seek um, improvements that are required across the value chain. Uh, so I, you know, I think a lot is being done, but fundamentally, we absolutely need to work faster. A lot of the things that I think are, I suppose, if I'm truly honest, too much of of the budget is being spent on the marketing side and not on the R and D. Right. So the greenwashing that is prevalent is just confusing everybody and slowing progress down. You know, for me, the money needs to be spent working with the supply chain and working collaboratively across the industry to push the agenda forward. So, you know, signs of life, definitely lots of positive um, signs of life. But no, we absolutely need to crack on. Brilliant. that's, That's good. A few weeks ago, we had John Brown on our podcast who encouraged businesses to have an unwavering focus on honesty and an honest communication strategy with customers. I noticed on your website, there is a section called the Factories of Finisterre, and customers can click on this to see where the Finisterre products are actually made and who works there. Did you choose to share this information with your customers? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I I absolutely applaud um, the the view that we need to have a more honest approach um, from brands to our our consumers. For me, this the reason why um, we've implemented the factories of Finisterre on our site is really about transparency over traceability. I think there's a real focus on the industry to to sort of harness gimmicks around um, the customer sort of being able to trace something. Where actually it's about transparency. It's about saying. This is who we work with. This is what it's made of. This is where it comes from for the customer to make their own mind up. And I think this is, for me, the antithesis of greenwashing. The the consumer needs to be able to know the facts and to understand how we'll have a deeper understanding of where things are made of. So I'll give you an example. I all the time have customers um, who will come either at events or, or through customer services who are really surprised that our products are not all made in Cornwall. They've got this impression that because you know they've, they've understood that we're a brand from Cornwall and they down the track, they feel disappointed, sometimes let down and sometimes angry. Um, and like they've been duped that we've not made all our products in Cornwall. And I, you know, I've got to sit there and say, Nothing is made in Cornwall apart from pasties. You know, you you show me the organic cotton field, and and the manufacturing um, facilities. So for me, this is about giving people, citizens, the the tools to deepen their understanding, so you can understand what what normal is to then be able to understand what good and better and best is. You know, so for me, that's why the transparency and the honest approach is is key and where we need to be. That must be really hard conversations to have, because I would imagine they'd be quite passionate individuals as well at um, a slightly let down. 
Absolutely. Yeah, you feel like you're sort of crushing all their dreams. But, um, but you know, we've got to have some grown up conversations, I think. Yeah, that's brilliant. And so what advice would you give to environmentally conscious consumers when trying to spot greenwashed products or brands? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question as well. And I think I think there's a lot that the consumer can do. I think we need to somehow occupy somewhere between a healthy dose of cynicism and and a you know big old dollop of optimism as well. I think some of the sort of common sense, if, if someone's telling you that that a, a plastic shoe is vegan leather, you know, you've got to really kind of go, hang on a minute, what does that mean? Unpick the words, you know, it's like it's not vegan leather, it's plastic. <laughs> and um and and some of those words we've just sort of been, you know, we've been exposed to this nonsense actually. So I think some of it's common sense. Um, but in terms of real kind of practical things that the consumer can do, um, really, it's about buying well, you know, buying stuff that you know you're going to look after, that you're going to get plenty of wear out. Don't buy into trends. And you know the difference, you know, if something that's sort of cheap quality. It's it's probably cheap. You know, it's not going to um, it's not going to last. Um, avoiding blends is a really, really key, um, a, a key a point as well. So if, trying to move away if you look at the the wash care label of something that's got five different materials in it that's down the track that's going to be very difficult to recycle or even to upcycle actually so blends is something that's really key um but you know more than anything buy well wash well learn to repair share you know if you if you're going on a once in a lifetime trip when we remember what traveling is again um if you're going on that once of a lifetime trip, do you need to buy all the gear and have it, you know, or can you can you share it? Can you pass it on? Can you resell it? There's so much now that the customer can do uh, to to engage um, a more sustainable um, advocacy in the community. I would hazard a guess the quality of Finisterre would mean that you've probably got quite a good secondhand market out there um, because you you find that don't you with with the better brands. Yeah, it's a really interesting um, point. We've been, uh, we're in the process actually, we're just about to launch our e-commerce, our trade-in and e-commerce platform. And it's been a really interesting journey been researching this. So the, there is a much um, higher resale value in your particularly outdoor or more premium brands quite simply because it's been, you know, it's been made out of um, superior fabrics, been built to last. Um, so it's, it's really, really key. And it's probably the most sustainable thing. If somebody said to me, like, what's the most sustainable product you, you can make? It is, you know, the vast majority of the impact of that product has been in its processing, its manufacture, its transportation, distribution, you know, so what you do once you as a customer have it, look after it, you know, have it for a long time, share it, resell it. It's it's a really, um, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's the real next sort of wave on the circular journey where the customer actually has the power. At some point, we'll be able to keep an eye on clothes, won't we? I mean, we're not probably there yet with technology, but you'll have something that you can just sew into the material and it will tell you how old it is and when it was. And so therefore you could kind of, that would introduce a air of traceability that we've not got at the moment. 
completely. Um, and it's something that we're, we're, we're looking at. The, the area that I find more interesting within that whole discussion is the stories. So I think, you know, clothes, they're, they're incredibly individual and personal to us. And the idea that you get to share your stories from one owner to the next, you know, and this idea of shared ownership, that's what I love about the idea of technology, being able to weave our stories together as opposed to just, you know, arbitrary tech and saying, came from here, made of this. But you're, you're right. Online, you could have it, if it was NFC, you could just, you tap it with your phone and up would come one thing. And then you could write down what, your, what you did on that day. And yeah, and then when you pass it on, the next person would tap on it. And that would be cool. An online journal of your shirt. And you could look back at where your shirt had been. Oh, it's been to the Himalayas. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that's what, I mean, unfortunately, I'm not I'm useless on tech. So if I had the skills, I would be building that app right now. Um, but it's it's definitely my dream. And I think we, we sort of have a, a, a little bit of a window there on our repair service where we have our customers will, will, will request a repair to be visibly mended. So to have like brightly colored contrast patches on a jacket. And I, <laughs> and I love that because I think it's a, it's a similar idea of, of telling those stories. You know, maybe they, they jumped over a fence and jagged it here on, on a fun weekend traveling away somewhere or whatever. I just love the idea that our, our, our clothes can tell these stories and, and sort of share our little, little sort of badges of adventures. I think there's, there's so much more. Um, their sort of personalization, more fun. Yeah. In your opinion, what problems associated with the textile industry contribute to climate change and environmental damage? Well, unfortunately, it's not a short list. Um, you know, so really our ocean health, our soil health, human and animal health are all affected by, you know, the textile and clothing industry. Um, it's a very sort of hard truth and a sobering fact. Um, however, you know, I, I, I take, um, I do take solace from the fact that we, we know this now. I think, you know, 25 years ago, we were sort of merrily making dreadfully toxic materials, um, you know, sort of blindly. So actually, we do know um, that some of the materials that we we use we just need to stop using some of them um, and some of the processes so you know quite simple um, sort of moves that have happened in the last decade even you know moving from cotton to organic cotton and to regenerative farming these are big big step for, steps forward that have a big impact on, on, on carbon, have an impact on ocean health, soil health, and obviously in turn on human and animal welfare. So I think we're going through this real incremental kind of improvements. Um, and I'm extremely positive that we can get to a point where we have, you know, net, net um, positive materials. It's at the moment, I think we need to be quite patient with the technology. So some of the the steps that we need to take today to improve the materials and the products that we make, um, we, we need to we need to make them now. So, circular design and design for repair, design for recyclability. Infrastructure is not quite in quite there yet. We're all waiting for this fiber to fiber recycling. It's coming. It's going to come. The investment is there, but we just need to to really 
put the the time in, the due diligence in at the beginning, I think, across the board, particularly arming our designers, um, our sort of creative people, so that they, they understand that the, the selections and the decisions they make in the products um, that they create it is so important in terms of the, the, you know, it might be 10 years down the track before that product um, needs to be recycled or repaired. But let's put the time in at the design design phase. That makes sense. And you mentioned organic cotton and cotton, and you read about organic cotton using more water, and it's usually grown in more water sparse areas. What should we be thinking as consumers with that? Yeah, so this is this is the really tricky um, sort of trade-off. If I sort of come back a step from it, people are often ask what's the best textile or the most sustainable fiber or material and i think that plays into into your question there and they all have good and bad right so you know something like organic cotton it's thirsty it's not as thirsty as cotton so you've made an improvement there um but then if you you say okay well it's it's not too bad on the on the on the carbon front um but it, it loses some marks on water you get something like polyester and okay not not so bad on the waterfront not so bad on carbon microfiber issue at the end end of life recycled polyester bit better still you know so you've got these little incremental trade-offs we thought we'd found it all in wool um because wool um is a is a, a biodegradable um fiber it's renewable it's not got a particularly um large water footprint but unfortunately, carbon—you um, know—it's it's a carbon-intensive um, fiber, mainly because of, of its processing from from sheep through to mill. Um, so all of these things, you have to identify the sort of the good and the bad all the way through its life cycle, and say how can we make it better. There's a lot, I think, in terms of recycled wool. It's very interesting, recycled cotton as well. So you're you're minimizing the input from the early stages of that processing and production where a lot of the impact is felt. But again, I really sort of say that so much of this conversation is really quite fresh. You know, I've, I've been in, involved, you know, for over a, a, a decade in sustainable um, fibres and trying to understand these trade-offs. I feel like I've only just woken up to a lot of this information. It's still quite fresh. Innovation is happening daily, uh, and as is investment to move move this agenda forward. So we're using less water. We're we're minimising the energy that's going in, and we're pushing recycled. So we don't have to keep using virgin fibres. And you're you're doing a lot in wetsuits, aren't you? You've got a lot of research in. I think you're working with Exeter University. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Can you tell us a bit about what you're doing with regards to the wetsuit technology and fabrics going into wetsuits? Yeah, we kind of picked the hardest um, product there is, I would say, in terms of um, <laughs> from an apparel point of view. It's uh, anybody that's that's ever worn a wetsuit, I think you'll, you'll understand this more. But to paint the picture, this the, the wetsuit is, you know, it maximizes your time in the sea, your enjoyment factor, um, exponentially increases by the quality of your wetsuit um, so this piece of, of rubber that's wrapped around you uh, can, will keep you warm and dry in the sea it's also a pretty filthy thing so 
even if you say you don't, everyone pees in their wetsuit, you leave it in your garage or your back of the car, you know, you abuse it. It's a pretty gross um, kind of product. In terms of how it is um, produced at, at the outset, it's a highly toxic process, um, blown neoprene. Uh, the glues um, that are used, the solvents to attach these, these, these different um, composite materials together, which all of these things increase your time in the water and your enjoyment factor. So they're massively at odds with one another. So from Finster point of view, um, we've taken this two, twofold approach. One, um, we've moved away from using any neoprene. So we, we have switched entirely to Ulex, which is a, a natural rubber. Um, so from a carbon and a water um, footprint point of view, uh, massively reduced compared to neoprene. The other side of our work is around um, wetsuits from wetsuits which really is about as hard as, 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 you, can, as you can go on this. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we looked at jumpers um, from T-shirts and, and beanies from jeans. And, and you know, all of this is technically possible at the moment. It's just a few more dots to join and to a few more emails to send. Um, but actually, wetsuits from wetsuits, really bit a bit of a tough one. So we employed um, working with Exeter University several years ago, the world's first wetsuit recycler, um, to understand how, how do we work backwards from this goal of having wetsuits from wetsuits. So I'm, I'm really pleased to say that we're very, very nearly at the commercial stage of looking at how these materials can be deconstructed through looking at alternatives to glues. And actually, a lot of our issues um, in general around fibre to fibre recycling is just this is a global industry. So we might find exactly who we need to work with, but they're in Australia and they've got to go via China. So, you know, some of these things we've just got to got to overcome in the next decade is going to be about shrinking the supply chain and, and making those sort of intelligent um, jumps to, to, to complete the loop. But yeah, it's, it, it's happening. As a, as a kite surfer, uh, you're basically talking about nuclear fusion, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> it's brilliant. I love it. I think, some, I mean, I, I, that I don't buy wetsuits that often, as you, as you know, if you do buy good quality wetsuits, but because um, the price of your, wetsuits are more um than but that's because you're getting quality isn't it yeah absolutely i, I mean going back to that point around you know it's it's a serious bit of kit mm. um you know if you if you take it serious seriously you know i live in cornwall i see unfortunately i've got to be honest i, I see bins on the beach full of children's sort of once worn um, mm. poor quality wetsuits. You know, this, this, this is happening, unfortunately. I think if you are a waterman or woman and you're going in, in the sea, um, you know, I, I think if you have a relationship with the ocean, you should be thinking about the products that you're buying to go in there as well. Yeah. For me, it's sort of, it feels like a, a bit of a no-brainer, but it is a lot of money. Um, we're also really interested in the rental market again. You know, mm. if you are only going surfing once or twice a year, do you need your own wetsuit? So, you know, there's other opportunities there. It doesn't have to be you have yeah. to spend a fortune. There mm. are there's lots of other ways around this. But one thing that we've um, done with the men's and women's um, wetsuits as we've developed them, we've had a wetsuit tester program, which has been just 
such a, an engaging um, group of people who've been giving us that feedback in terms of what could be better, how's that fit, how does it feel, how does it age, and you know that's that's a really important um, the, the mm. feedback that goes into the development of the product and, and continually pushing um, for improvements is it's, it's vital. Well, as chairman of the British Kite Sports Association, I know a number of kite surfers that would go down and test for you because they would be pushing it to its limits on that in that respect. Sadly, yeah, it's not me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was. I really wish it was. <laughs> um, Finisterre run a number of campaigns and initiatives in environmental activism, and a lot of that focuses on health of our oceans. Why is the health of our oceans so important? And what are the problems that you're trying to bring attention to? Yeah, it's a big focus of, of, of what we're doing. Actually, two weeks ago, we just had a, an amazing event um, that we just ran called called C7, which was an ocean activism um, training camp. It's the first time we've ever done anything like that. Obviously, challenged because of um, of COVID restrictions, it was a it was a, a largely online event. But it that was probably a good thing because it meant our reach was was, was far beyond um, that of a, a small event in Cornwall. Um, and the reason why we put C Seven on um, was really about trying to 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 connect people to the idea that everybody, whether you, you're a surfer or you live by the coast coast or not, we are all connected to the ocean. Um, and we are all we all need the ocean um, for our future health. Um, from a from a, a carbon point of view, you know our oceans are huge carbon sinks, um, and they are being negatively exposed to the dangers of of climate change through acidification and um, you know, uh, ecosystems that are dying out. It's the, the warming of the seas is something that is going to affect everybody. Um, and we're really interested in terms of what can we do as a community? How can we engage and align um, and, and, and come together, actually, to protect the ocean? And what's, some, what's been really interesting as well through the activism um, campaigns that we've been running is it's not just about people who live by the coast. In fact, it's, it's probably more important that you're focusing on the people that don't already have a relationship with, with our oceans. You can't, I think it's really hard to, to expect somebody who doesn't have a connection with the natural world to understand why they should protect it or why they should respect it and make decisions that are um, about protecting our natural world. So a lot of our, our activism just surrounds allowing people to engage with that natural world whether that is a photography or a film event in, a, in an urban store that allows people to see the beauty of the ocean and to be inspired, um, or it's about people who can't get to the sea. Um, they have barriers of access, whether it's disability or location. So, you know, so to be honest, our, our ocean activism um, campaigns are quite broad and quite, quite far-reaching in terms of it's just all rooted in this idea of giving people access to enable them to have a relationship in order to then protect what you love. And lastly, can I please ask what the future of sustainability at Finisterre looks like? Are there any exciting new developments in the pipeline to reduce your carbon footprint even further? 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's as, I've, as you can tell by now, I don't give short answers to these things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's very much a, a continuous evolution. Um, you know, it isn't, it isn't about a sort of turn a campaign on or off. So it is very much a continuation of our um, of our, our targets to continue sourcing renewable recycled fabrics, um, targeting zero waste and, and fully circular products. Um, a lot of our attention in the last twelve months, um, working with with Green Element, um, has been incredibly enlightening in terms of understanding where our key impacts from a, from a carbon point of view are. Um, and this this has been a really important um, sort of step for us to take to understand from our products and the material mixes and the supply chain where we can make these incremental improvements and then the impact that they have over a longer time. So that's, I think, where we're at the moment is very much around making these material changes. Um, we've, we've discovered uh, through our carbon footprint um, project that our materials are our highest footprint. It's not a it's not a surprise, um, but it's allowed us really to have the facts in front of us to then go, okay, let's do some scenarios. What if we don't, you know, if we switch from 80-20 wool nylon to 100% recycled, you know, what does that look like in wool? So this is this is quite fun. Um, we've been doing a lot of a, a lot of that. Um, the other um, side of the coin, we've been looking at investing more in, in bio um, materials. So we're doing a lot in terms of biodegradable synthetics and in terms of um, bio-based uh, renewable materials. Algae is where it's going to be at for me. I've got, I've got my eye on algae as a source of, of material, okay. um, as a fiber, but right. also as a carbon remo- removal project as well. So really a kind of a, a two for one aligning with our activism um, and protection of the seas and potentially with our products as well. So I've got a long list, if I'm honest, but um, it's really a continuation of of everything we've been doing. Um, Our work will never be done, really. It's a a long list. Operational footprint. um, How's that going? Are you um, are you reducing as a you know, as a business, um, forgetting about your products, but operationally? Yeah, I mean, if I'm honest with you, the operational side of things is 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 the easy part. Yeah, we've got a huge supply chain um, across. Um, I think we're at eight different territories, twenty seven different factories. You know, that's that's the challenge for us um, in, in front of us. I'm always amazed when I hear that companies say that they're they're, they're carbon neutral or they're net zero and they're there already, and then they say across scopes one and two, and you're like. But, you know, scope three, scope three is really where that impact is, where that real change is. So for us, when we've looked at the information around uh, us as a business, um, the changes that we can and will be making in the next 12 months are more than achievable in terms of switching completely to renewable energy. It's so nearly there. Some of the... um, Again, with with the transport and distribution as well, courier network. Some of this stuff um, is is just a case of just you know it's, it's it's a switch. You know we're quite lucky, I think, in that respect. That you know in 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 the UK, um, there's already the infrastructures 
get, getting there. We're not, we're, not, we're not perfect by any stretch, but they're the easy fixes for us, truth be told. The, the biggest challenge um, for us lies in our supply chain, materials and, and transportation. The um, freight transportation is interesting. We do all the carbon reporting for, with Compare Your Footprint for a surf dome, an internet fusion. And you can now go on the surf dome website and choose which courier is the most environmental to bring it that it's quite interesting what they're doing there because because of the data that we've now got from all of their transport they're actually pushing people to the more sustainable option yeah no it's fantastic hmm. i mean it's, it's been interesting that we've had our stores closed pretty much for you know the majority of the last 18 months our, our retail stores have been closed but now they're starting they're, they're reopening we're realizing as well that the role they can play. So in terms of, you know, a 4% of our transport and distribution um, carbon footprint was from customer returns. If you can go into store and try something on um, and minimize that having to buy two and return one, I'm dreadful for it. I'll be honest. I hate to admit it. Um, you know, it's the role of retail here as well in terms of, you know, we're moving more to digital, but actually where can we make those 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 changes so you can try something on, click and collect, store collect. You know, we, we've got so many options now as, as consumers. Um, and I think it's brilliant if, if if the consumer can can have the option or they can say, I'm not in a rush, you know, send, send it to me in a few few days. I'll have it up by a bike. So, um, yeah, lot, a lot it of opportunities. Pushes, yeah, it pushes those transport companies as well because if they're suddenly losing work, they're like, oh, we're not actually getting the work. They'll start greening their fleet up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Great to be here. And thanks for listening to the Sustainable Business Podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, why not join our post-podcast discussion in our online community at sustainabilitysolved.org. We will be sharing ideas and collaborating on sustainable clothing and the textile industry with our members. Join now and find a space to collaborate with like-minded professionals, learn more about sustainable business and inspire others to become more environmental. We also have an important update for our listeners. We will soon be changing the name of this podcast to Sustainability Solved to better reflect the content of our podcast. You will be able to access all of our original podcasts on your preferred platform. And if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you subscribe to every episode and don't forget to follow Green Element on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram.